Hello, and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'd like to begin by offering my sincere mea culpa for being absent last week. My wife, Betty, had some minor surgery. She's doing very well, but kindly keep her in your prayers, if you would. Uh, later on today, we're going to look at the gospel for the upcoming Sunday in the extraordinary form, the 21st after Pentecost. But you may recall the gospel I read two weeks ago was the parable of the marriage feast, which describes heaven as a royal wedding feast and hell as the exterior darkness. And traditionally, that gospel provides an opportunity for instructing the faithful regarding heaven and hell. And given the confusion in the church over the issue of salvation uh, with some theologians, even priests and bishops, teaching that all go to heaven without exception, and others denying the very existence of hell, or at least of eternal punishment, seems like a timely topic for a program called No Nonsense Catholic. And uh, now, full disclosure, the following is largely taken from the book Goffin's Explanation of the Epistles and Gospels, upon which I re so frequently rely. Matthew 22, 13, the king says of the man without a wedding garment, cast him into the exterior darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the first question, is there a hell, a place where the damned must suffer eternal punishment? And to this, we must answer yes. Reason and Holy Scripture and the church all teach us that there is a hell. Reason tells us that there's a just God who will punish sin. And it's evident that all sins are not punished in this world. Therefore, there must be a place where every unrepented mortal sin will be punished in eternity. And this place or state is hell. And this is a belief common even to peoples and, and nations that didn't enjoy the light of revelation. Clearer still is the existence of hell shown by Holy Scripture. Job 10.22 speaks of a region of misery and darkness where the shadows of death and eternal terror dwells. Prophet Isaiah says that hell is deep and wide and that the fire burning in it is like a stream of sulfur ignited by the breath of the Lord. Our Savior expressly, <coughs> expressly says that those who have done evil they shall be tortured by everlasting fire that in Matthew 25. He makes mention of hell also in Mark 9 and Matthew 10, and says that an inextinguishable fire burns there, and a worm which never dies plagues the wicked. Now, all the fathers of the church are unanimous in teaching and testifying to this same doctrine. St. Augustine, among many others, says the infinite wisdom of God us that there is a hell, and it is the unlimited power of God that punishes the damned in, in a wonderful but real manner. Both sacred scripture and the church teach us about the pains of hell, that the damned burn there in an unquenchable fire. Those are the words of Jesus from Mark 9:45. Holy doctors of the church ascends from century to century. Pope St. Gregory the Great said, I see this fire as if it were gifted with reason. It makes a distinction between the guilty and tortures the damned according to the nature of their sins. This fire burns, but it never consumes its victims. Cassiodora says that it communicates immortality to the reprobate and lets them suffer pain which preserves them like salt which penetrates the flesh and keeps it from corruption. As Jesus says in Mark 9:48, they shall be salted with fire. Matthew 8:12 tells us that this fire doesn't shine 
but leaves the reprobate in darkness. So it's a fire that burns, but gives no light. And with this fire, a, a never dying worm continually torments the damned. Now, these images are based on Gehenna, which is a, a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem in the ancient world, where all manner of refuse, including dead bodies, were constantly being burned and where the worms feasted continually on decaying flesh. But the Holy a bad conscience, and particularly the loss of the beatific vision. It says, this thought will eternally torment the damned. I have lost God, the only true and highest good. I have lost him through my fault. I have lost him for a brief pleasure. I have lost him forever. In hell, he says, eternity devours all time. And if, after millions and millions of years have passed since a damned soul entered hell, and he wailingly asks his companion in misery, what time is it? He receives the answer, eternity. Now, who in his right mind could reflect on this and not fear hell and seek to avoid sin, which incurs such an eternal punishment? And yet, how many are there today upon whom the truth of the existence of hell makes no impression at all? who even deny that there is such a place, or, or who say God is love, he cannot eternally punish a sin which was committed in, in so short a time as the life of a human being. But those who speak this way forget that God is infinitely just. Yes, his love and mercy are indeed always ready to forgive the contrite and the penitent, but his justice must also be satisfied when the, the, the sinner continually rejects his merciful love. I think they forget that every grievous sin which a person commits voluntarily and knowingly, right, every mortal sin, is an infinite, eternal insult offered to God, which can be absolved and then atoned for by penance in this life or purgatory. Only absolved in this life, but, but, but the temporal punishment can be, can be uh, made in this life or in purgatory, or it will be eternally punished. Because the perverted and malicious will of a person who dies in mortal sin remains and therefore must also be punished eternally. And so I join my voice to that of Father Goffin and the whole of Catholic tradition when I say, my dear Christian, do not listen to such deceivers. Do not listen to those who on account of their own sinful life fear hell and therefore try to free themselves from this fear by denying the existence of hell, because they cannot succeed. Jesus, who is the truth, has told us that there is a hell, and his word remains for all eternity. Pious life to escape hell. Descend there in spirit, as the church says, frequently. That is, contemplate the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Contemplate the torments of the damned and let that reflection urge you to imitate Christ, who has promised the joys of heaven to all of his faithful followers. Speaking of which, Jesus also said the kingdom of heaven is likened to a king who made a marriage for his son. Heaven is compared by Christ to a marriage feast because we will enjoy there all the pleasures befitting perfect union with God. Now, precisely in what those joys consist, we don't know. Even St. Paul, who was wrapped into the third heaven and experienced those pleasures, couldn't describe them. He could only say, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man what things God hath prepared for them that love him. 
But the Bible gives us many descriptions of the celestial joys by comparing heaven to a, a paradise of bliss or a precious pearl or a treasure which neither rust nor moth consumes nor thieves can steal. Or again, represents heaven as a kingdom, a throne, or a, a crown, <laughs> a crown and a throne, or we might say a throne and a crown, whereby we are raised to the highest honor. Or as the picture of a city that's built from gold and pearls and precious stones and lit entirely by the splendor of God without the need for the sun or the moon, filled with glory, with a blessed enjoy eternal peace and security. Now, of course, these are only images or, or similitudes, we'd say. The kingdom of heaven is like, right? And they're taken from the most beautiful and precious and magnificent, magnificent things of the earth. Sorry, I'm working with rented lips today. Now, in order to teach us that heaven is as beautiful and pleasant a place as we can desire or imagine, and that all possible beauty, kindness, and joy will be found there in perfection, entirely free from evil and the fear of losing them, that in heaven we will possess God himself, the source of all joy and bliss, and enjoy his own happiness for all eternity. Well, obviously the supernatural joys of heaven are mysterious in the true sense of the word. But what more do we need to know in order to have the highest conception of heaven? Who wouldn't willingly reject the illicit pleasures of sin while contemplating this indescribable bliss? Who would not willingly bear all the misfortunes and miseries of this world when Jesus said, he who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted? What would avail it avail us to have enjoyed the, all the pleasures of this world if deprived of the pleasures of heaven and eternity? Or in the words of our Lord, what doth it profit a man to gain the whole world and suffer the loss of his soul? Thomas Akempis says in The Imitation of Christ, Be therefore always prepared to live in such a manner that death may never find thee unprovided. How happy and prudent is he who strives to be such now in this life as he desires to be found at his death. The present time is very precious. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation, says St. Paul. Learn now to die to the world, and then thou mayest begin to live with Christ. Now, in his commentary on this passage from the Imitation, Bishop Challoner says, the great secret of dying happily is to live always in the same state in which we hope to die, and in which we desire that God may find us when our last hour shall have arrived. We should, therefore, do all the good and practice all the virtues now which we shall then wish to have done and practiced. Endeavor, he says, to die daily to some one of all those things, which, when thou departest hence, thou must leave forever. Happy the Christian who dies often in spirit, ere he quits the flesh. His death shall be holy and precious in the sight of God. And that's no nonsense. All right, when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, the gospel for the upcoming Sunday after Pentecost, going to talk later about the armor of God and how to put it on, and also continue our discussion about active participation at the Holy Mass. All that and more coming up on No Nonsense Catholic right after this.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Uh, later on, we will continue our discussion on active participation at Mass from the last program and talk about putting on the armor of God. But for now, let's look at the gospel for the upcoming 21st Sunday after Pentecost, the parable of the unforgiving servant taken from Matthew 18, 23 through 35. At that time, Jesus spoke to his disciples this parable. The kingdom of heaven is likened to a king who would take an account of his servants. And when he had begun, that owed him 10,000 talents. And as he had not wherewith to pay it, his Lord commanded and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. But that servant falling down besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And the Lord of that servant, being moved with pity, let him go, and forgave him the debt. But when that servant was gone out, he found one of his fellow servants that owed him a hundred pence. And laying hold of him, he throttled him, saying, Pay what thou owest. And his fellow servant, falling down, besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not but went and cast him into prison till he paid the debt. Now his fellow servants, seeing what was done, were very much grieved, and they came and told their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord called him and said to him, Thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all the debt because thou besoughtest me. Shouldst not thou have then had compassion also on thy fellow servant, even as I had compassion on thee? And his Lord, being angry, delivered him to the torturers until he paid all the debt. So the Heavenly Father do to you, if you forgive not everyone his brother from your hearts. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Okay, so this is a parable, which means all the characters and events symbolize something. So the king, for example, is God, and the servants represent all mankind. And what about the 10,000 talents? Well, a talent was a unit of measure in the ancient world, equivalent to about 71 pounds. And the 10,000 talents of gold, is, therefore, is an astronomical amount. In today's money, something in excess of a trillion dollars. And parables are, are full of such exaggeration in order to make a point. In this case, the talents signify mortal sin, uh, the guilt of which is so great that no creature can pay it. Even all the works of the saints cannot make atonement because by every mortal sin, the infinitely great and good and holy God is offended. offended. It's, it's as impossible for any creature to cancel that debt as it is for a servant to pay a debt of a trillion dollars. Nevertheless, God is so merciful that he remits the whole immeasurable debt of sin on account of the infinite merits of Christ. The saying, he paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. And to show the immensity of that debt, the master ordered not only the servant, but also his wife and children to be sold. And all that he had, not, which still wouldn't have paid the debt off. Uh, or some, some of the fathers suggest that because may, perhaps they assisted in contracting that debt or gave occasion for its increase, which is a warning for, for anyone who would anyway make them selves partakers of other people's sins. And how do we do that? How do we participate in somebody else's sin? Right? Traditionally, uh, the church has enumerated nine ways, by counsel, command, consent, provocation, praise or flatterly, concealment, partaking, 
and silence uh, and by defending their sins. So what about the hundred pence, which is, a, you know, like roughly equivalent to a dollar that uh, was owed to the unforgiving servant? Well, that, that hundred pence signifies the offenses committed against us, which in comparison to our debt to God are insignificant. So what Jesus is illustrating by this parable is that if God is so merciful to forgive us our immense debt of sin, we should be merciful and willing to forgive our fellow men the faults and offenses that they commit against us, right? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Those who do not do this, Scripture tells us, will not receive pardon from God, but instead will fulfill the words of James 2.13, judgment without mercy to him that hath not done mercy. So those who throttle their debtors represent, in general, the, the unmerciful, but particularly those who have no compassion for their debtors, those who would immediately go to law and, and not rest until the debtor is left without house or home those who would oppress widows and orphans if they owe them anything, thus committing one of the sins that cry to heaven for vengeance. Those who even in just lawsuits act harshly or severely with their opponent without you know, the slightest inclination to come to an agreement with him. And finally, those, those governors, you know, rulers and landlords who overburden their subjects with excessive rents and, and taxes and enforce them unmercifully. Father Goffin says that such people stand accused by their guardian angel, their own conscience, and the merciless act itself, which cries to God for vengeance. So Jesus concludes the parable with these words, and his Lord being angry delivered him to the torturers until he paid all the debt. So also shall my heavenly Father do to you if you forgive not everyone his brother from your hearts. So what then is it to, to forgive from the heart? Father Goffin says it is to banish from the heart all hatred, ill will, and revengeful desires. True and sincere love towards our offenders and enemies, not just interiorly, but exteriorly, by deeds of charity. Therefore, those who have not forgiven from their hearts, who say and, and even convince themselves that they have will against their enemy and at the same time refuse to pray for him, or help him in his necessity, even when they might do so, but rather rejoice at his hardship, um, even secretly. That's what it means to fail to forgive from your heart. And and lastly, the verse where the, the servant pleads, the fellow servant pleads, have patience with me, traditionally provides an examination, or at a, uh, 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 provides an um, opportunity for an examination of the virtue of patience. Since God has had such great patience with us, that should move us to likewise have patience with each other and with our faults and weaknesses, and to resign ourselves patiently in all the sufferings and tribulations sent to us from God. And this is a hard lesson for us to learn. I know that I struggle pretty much with it, you know, all the time, which probably means that I don't properly struggle with it at all, especially when our Lord asks, what will your patience avail you? Will you thereby change or ease your sufferings? Do you thereby correct the faults of your neighbor? Obviously not. On the contrary, it makes our suffering worse and our misfortune greater and, and the, the erring neighbor more obstinate so that he'll ultimately refuse even mild and, and patient corrections. 
Besides, impatience leads to many sins, to, to cursing, to quarreling, to contention, even murder. And once again, the pious Job gives us a good example, that of true penitence and resignation to the will of God. You know, here was a, a wealthy, respected, God-fearing man, the father of seven sons and three daughters, who lived peacefully and happily. And God wished to try him and, and permitted the devil to vent his entire diabolic rage upon him. Job lost his children and all of his property and finally was afflicted with the most painful disease of leprosy. But in the midst of all these dreadful misfortunes, he remained calm. Naked, covered with sores, he sits on a dunghill, just the, the very picture of misery. But he doesn't murmur, he doesn't curse, he doesn't blaspheme God. He says with resignation, naked I emerged from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. The Lord gave, and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And to add to all this misery was the contempt of his own wife, uh, who came and mocked him, and of his, uh, his three friends, his, the, the Job's comforters, who, you know, instead of consoling, judged him falsely and, and said that his misery was the punishment for his sins. And still Job didn't murmur against God's um, dispensations. With unshakable patience, he faithfully confided in God, and he was not forsaken. God ultimately rewarded him for his fidelity and patience, and, and uh, giving him even greater wealth than he had to begin with. Now, some scholars say that the story of Job is itself a parable, uh, just a story to make a point. But whatever the case, the story of Job powerfully demonstrates what patience can do and what reward is in store for it. And yet here I am, a Christian, a follower of Christ, the, the infinitely patient, crucified Lamb of God, getting immediately irritated and quick to anger and resentment at every little cross I meet. Now, Father Goffin admonishes the impatient by saying, be ashamed of your weakness and learn from the pious Job to practice the virtue of patience, for patience demonstrates hope, and hope permits us not to be put to shame. And that's no nonsense. Now, normally, <clears throat> when we look at the Sunday readings, we, we look at the epistle before the gospel. But this upcoming Sunday's epistle in the extraordinary form deserves a verse-by-verse -verse exegesis because it is St. Paul's teaching about putting on the armor of God from Ephesians 6. And in this world of confusion and constant temptation and instant gratification, we need this protection more than ever. St. Paul reminds us that our struggle with sin is a spiritual battle, and so we need a spiritual defense. Our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but with the principalities with the powers, which, with the world rulers of this present darkness, and with wicked spirits in high places. So he tells us to put on the armor of God that you may be able to resist on the evil day, and having done everything to hold your ground. So stand fast with your loins girded in truth, clothed with righteousness as a breastplate, and your feet shod in readiness for the gospel of peace. 
In all circumstances, hold faith as a shield to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, this passage speaks directly to the vocation of every lay Catholic. Because this metaphorical suit of armor represents a compendium of Catholicism. For example, St. Paul begins by telling us we must stand fast with our loins girded in truth. Now, to gird your loins means to prepare for battle by belting on your sword. To, to gird literally means to encompass or encircle. So we begin this spiritual battle by surrounding ourselves with the truth. And we know who that is. Jesus said, I have come to give testimony to the truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. He who is of the truth hears my voice. And then we take up our spiritual armor. But how do we do that practically? I'll have some suggestions when we return with lots more No-Nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful. Welcome back to No Nonsense, talking about some practical ways to put on the armor of God, as St. Paul admonishes us. So uh, here's some suggestions, beginning with the shield of faith. As the Bible says in Hebrew 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is your first line of defense. You must know your faith in order to keep your faith. You must know your faith before you can share your faith. You must know your faith before you can defend your faith, and so on. And where do we learn the faith? From the Catechism. In the midst of confusing times and a multitude of opinions, the Catechism is your sure guide to the faith. Next is the helmet of salvation. How are we saved? Well, through the grace of God, of course. And, and how is the grace of God communicated for us? The graces won for us on the Holy Cross are communicated to the world through the sacraments, the seven sacraments, and through prayer. And, and sacrament and prayer are perfectly united every day at Holy Mass. And if you can't get to the Holy Mass uh, every day, um, then you can still pray the readings and the proper prayers. Right? And the same goes for the Liturgy of the Hours, which is the other official liturgical prayer of the Church. If, if you don't uh, reside somewhere where you can say them in communion, you can say them on your own. So to put on the helmet of salvation... You should have a missal and a breviary, or at the very least, a good Catholic prayer book. And by the way, the daily texts of the Mass and the Liturgy of the Hours and other Catholic prayers are available uh, on apps for your smartphone and periodicals like the Magnificat. It's like the, the Catechism and the entire Bible in multiple translations. The daily readings are also available online for free at the bishop's website, usccb.org. And if you assist at the traditional liturgy, like I do, there's a publication called Benedictus, with the extraordinary form of the Mass propers for every day, as well as morning and evening psalms and a daily meditation. And the internet can come in handy here as well. The website Divinum Officium has the traditional Latin Mass and all the hours of the traditional Divine Office for every day as well, and again for free. So 
no excuses. Next is the breastplate of righteousness, right? And, and a breastplate protects what? The heart. And righteousness comes from following the moral law, which is written on the heart, as St. Paul says in the book of Romans. So this breastplate represents the Ten Commandments and the theological and moral virtues. And we are instructed in virtue, especially by spiritual reading, like the imitation of Christ or the lives of the saints, where we will find you know, practical advice on the one hand and vivid examples of the gospel in action on the other. Spiritual reading is the school of Christian perfection. And, and speaking of spiritual reading, along with our spiritual armor, St. Paul says we must take up our spiritual weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the Holy Bible. In Hebrews 4.12, St. Paul says, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Commenting on this verse, Pope Benedict XVI of Holy Memory said, It is necessary to take seriously the injunction to consider the word of God to be the indispensable weapon in the spiritual struggle. This will be effective and show results if we learn to listen to it and then to obey it. So to be effective Catholics who follow the commands of Scripture and tradition, and yes, that includes the Second Vatican Council, we must gird ourselves in truth and put on this spiritual armor, which also represents a spiritual library. And finally, as a companion to being girt in truth, St. Paul says to be shod in readiness for the gospel. Putting on your shoes means that you're ready to go out, that you're ready for action. And as St. Peter said, sanctify the Lord, or sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks you for a reason. And for that, you need the armor of God, which also includes the theological and moral virtues, especially the virtues of meekness and humility and fortitude, because to be ready to share the gospel, you will also need to be ready for something else facing ridicule. My mother, God rest her soul, told me when I was little, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. However, ridicule remains one of the most powerful of the fiery darts of the evil one that St. Paul warns us about. It is the great enemy of Christian perfection. It is an echo of the mockery heaped upon our Lord Jesus Christ in his passion. In our days, Ridicule has become the chief weapon of the world against all things that are good and true and honorable. Virtue, uh, faith and chastity, for example, uh, is mercilessly, mercilessly ridiculed today. As if there's something absurd or even dangerous about being pure and pious. According to, to Kenelm Digby in his great work on chivalry, The Broadstone of Honor, he said, there is no need in an enlightened age of men becoming too heroic too generous, too zealous in their defense of innocence, and too active in the cause of virtue and truth. The danger is quite on the other side. There is much to be feared from the ridicule which is cast upon sentiment and from the importance attached to personal convenience. Those words were written just over 200 years ago, and ridicule is still the great enemy of virtue and truth. Richard Dawkins, that 
apostle of modern atheism says, of religion need to be ridiculed with contempt. He calls for believers to publicly, or unbelievers rather, to publicly mock people of faith, especially Catholics. He says atheists should ask Catholics, do you really believe that when a priest blesses a wafer, it turns into the body of Christ? Are you seriously telling me you believe that? Are you seriously saying that wine turns into blood? And if they answer yes, he says, mock them, ridicule them in public. And you'll notice that Dawkins doesn't just mock religious beliefs, but religious believers and calls for others to do the same. See, my point is that you would expect, you know, Dawkins as a so-called intellectual to offer some kind of rational argument in favor of his atheism <clears throat> rather than simply mocking people that believe in God and Catholics in particular. After all, ridicule and name calling are the tactics of a man with no argument. But ridicule is effective. And that's why it doesn't encourage atheists to think, because then they just might reason their way to God, but rather to heap opprobrium on what they don't understand. And these poor, benighted mockers of Christ literally hold nothing sacred. And so it makes you wonder, why are they so angry? And the answer is that the, God, uh, the law of God is written on the human heart. So deep down, they know that if they're right, then life is meaningless. If they're right and there's nothing in the world worth living for, then there's nothing worth dying for. And this is one reason for my increasing frustration and blessing homosexual unions in the church. Ordination of women was definitively ruled out by Pope St. John Paul II in Ordinatio Sacerdotalis. But even without that exercise of the papal magisterium, any Catholic eighth grader should be able to tell you that a sacrament requires proper matter and form to be valid. Valid ordination, therefore, whether to the diaconate or the priesthood, requires the laying of hands by a bishop on a baptized man. Christ instituted the sacraments. The church cannot change them. Therefore, the church, Catholic church can no more validly ordain a woman than it can baptize someone in motor oil or can infect the Eucharist with milk and cookies. It's sacrilegious even to suggest it. Likewise, the, the blessing of homosexual unions. And let's be clear, we are not talking about blessing individuals who struggle with attraction. We are talking about blessing couples actively engaged in homosexual relationships with one another. And may I say, often proudly and unrepentantly engaged in such relationships. Make no mistake, that is the union that they want blessed. Uh, Cardinal Ferrer, Pope Francis's former head of the doctrine of the faith, put it very simply. He said the church can bless sinners, but it cannot bless sin. So in both of these cases, Catholic teaching provides direct and definitive answers. The prohibitions against ordaining women and blessing homosexual unions are not confusing, nor are they controversial. They simply represent the ordinary universal magisterium of the church and consequently are infallible. So, honestly, continuing questions about such matters cannot really be sincere because they've already been answered. And yet progressive Catholics, quote-unquote, keep asking them anyway. Why? Well, Bishop Sheen answered that question by asking a more fundamental one. It's not better than we are. He said, the reason that we are not able to be better 
He said the sinner and the saint are set apart only by a series of tiny decisions within our hearts. Opposites are never so close as in the realm of the spirit. He says an abyss divides the poor from the rich, and one may cross it only with the help of external circumstances and good fortune. The dividing line between ignorance and learning is also deep and wide. Both leisure to study and a gifted mind would be required to turn an ignoramus into a learned man. But the passage from sin to virtue, from mediocrity to sanctity, requires no luck, no help from outer circumstances. It can be achieved by an efficacious act of our own wills in cooperation with God's grace. Sheen says St. Thomas Aquinas tells us that we are not saints because we will not to be saints. He doesn't say, mind you, that we don't want to be saints. Many of us do. But mere wanting is the wish that something shall come to pass without our acting to bring it about. Willing means that we plan to pay the necessary cost in effort and in sacrifice. And this is precisely the problem that we face today. Catholics who refuse to engage their own wills to conform to the truth for the church to accommodate their sins. Thomas Aquinas defined truth as confirming or conforming the mind to reality. But this often requires, as St. Paul says, the renewal of our mind. Sheen tells us evil thoughts are best destroyed by good thoughts and a mind filled with ideas of love and beauty. Little room. Okay, coming back with uh, more thoughts on the Mass when we return with No Nonsense Catholic right after this. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. You know, last time we unpacked the notion of active participation at Holy Mass by talking about the various postures that we assume at Mass <clears throat> and their meanings. Because if you're sitting and standing and kneeling at all the right times, but your heart isn't in it, or you're distracted, or you're not conscious of the reason why you're in a particular posture, then you lose the benefit that those postures are meant to accomplish. But if you come to Holy Mass and genuflect towards the tabernacle because you're consciously acknowledging Christ's real presence, and soul, and if you stand with, with your heart focused on prayer, and if you kneel in adoration in the presence of, of your Savior and his sacrifice made present on the altar, then your actions are true participation and not just going through the motions. I mentioned distractions, which is the other topic I wanted to discuss. We didn't have time last time. Because lots of people get distracted and, and have a really difficult time focusing their attention on the Holy Mass. But there's a number of ways to combat this. And the following list was compiled by Father Paul Michael Piega, once upon a time, the Church Pop website. And number one, he says, get to Mass a little early. Now, I've often said that being on time for Mass means being there before the priest processes into the sanctuary. But actually getting to Mass a little early gives you some time to pray and to acclimate yourself uh, to your surroundings. In other words, 
to transition from your worldly concern, news feed or your personal life, to what is about to take place at the Holy Mass, namely offering the sacrifice of Jesus to God the Father. Number two, you come to Mass with a specific intention. Now, at the beginning of every Mass, they announce the the official intention of that Mass. Today, we're going to this Mass is offered for the repose of the cell of, you know, Mr. Jones. But because we're part of the common priesthood of the baptized, lay Catholics enjoy a real participation in the priestly role of Jesus. And so we should come to Mass with our own personal intention or offering. And so during Mass, if your mind starts to wander, you know, you can bring yourself back by remembering your personal intention or the offering you're making which will help you stay focused. And you can offer up prayers and your relatives and benefactors, both living and dead uh, at various parts of the Mass, like during the offertory, especially, or before or after communion. Number three, he says, actively participate in the responses at Mass. Now, if there's one thing that Vatican II and the new Mass managed to do really well, it was to drill into the heads of Catholics that they need to participate in the liturgy. And I regularly assist at the Extraordinary Form Mass at my church, and most of the folks there are following the priest's prayers in the Missal and chanting the responses, as well as the Kyrie and the Sanctus and the Credo and the Gloria and so on, which I maintain is what the Council Fathers of Vatican II were really on about. And that's why it's called assisting at Mass. Because by consciously participating in the prayers and the actions, you thereby offer the Mass in spiritual union with the priest at the altar. Number four, he says, read the Mass readings before you go to Mass. And this is a good practice, especially for those who cannot attend daily Mass. You can go to your Missal or go to the Internet and read the readings of the day. But for Sunday... When you're going to attend Mass in person, reading the Bible readings ahead of time, and especially from your own Bible, or perhaps listening to this program, if you assist in the extraordinary form and, and, uh, and you know, listen to our little examinations of the upcoming Gospels and Epistles, reading those readings ahead of time, and I would say especially from your own Bible, can help you to become more familiar with the scriptures, for one thing, and for the context of the day's reading, you know, where it falls within the, the larger context of the scripture. And in addition, assuming your priest is preaching on the readings, it can help you better understand his homily. So a good practice all the way around. Number five, what if you go to Mass and you feel tired or sleepy? Well, Take my advice and do not close your eyes <laughs> under the assumption that it's going to help you listen better because you will wind up with your spouse digging an elbow in your ribs. Rather, fall, Father Paul Michael says, don't be afraid to get up out of the pew and stand up in the back, right? Walk around a little bit to uh, uh, like a seventh inning stretch if that's what it takes. And then number six, he says, if you have sacred images or statues of the saints in your church, and boy, it, it lets you know <laughs> where we are, that he feels the need to say, if you have sacred images in your church, then look at, the, at an image of the statue 
and or you know other image and ask for Mary's intercession or for that certain saint's prayers right there, right then and there in the moment. Because remember, the church triumphant, right? These countless angels and saints are also present at the mass, even though we can't physically see them. And I guess for me, that's the final point. Whether you mass, there is a whole supernatural reality that is unseen, but is made present to us in the signs and symbols and words and gestures and postures of the Holy Mass. And being conscious of that reality is what separates active participation from just going through the motions. And that's no nonsense. All right. Uh, you know, finally for today, I suspect you're aware that October 13th was the anniversary of the miracle of the sun at Fatima. But it's also the anniversary of the passing some 21 years ago uh, this year of Father Al Lauer. You know, we spoke earlier about the parable of the unforgiving servant, and it was Father Al who famously said, when I was first ordained a priest, I believed that over 50% of all problems were at least in part due to unforgiveness. After 10 years in ministry, I revised my estimate and maintained that 75 to 80% of all health, marital, family, and financial problems come from unforgiveness. Now, he says, after more than 20 years in ministry, I've concluded that over 90% of all problems are rooted in unforgiveness. Father was the founder of Presentation Ministries and literally wrote the book on forgiveness. And I invite you to go to presentationministries.com and read the book on forgiveness or his articles on forgiveness and evangelization, or unforgiveness is the cause, or 14 questions and answers on forgiveness, as well as all the other materials there. Uh, Eric Sammons posted a fine tribute to Father Lauer on the Crisis Magazine website last Friday. Something else that we have in common. You know, uh, Mr. Sammons has been a guest on No Nonsense Catholic. We, we have a lot in common, including a love for the traditional mass. And as it turns out for Father Lauer, and Mr. Sammons begins by noting that we lived in troubled times, both in the world and in the church. And that with all the bad news coming out of Rome and the Middle East, he says, <clears throat> it's enough to make one wonder, where is God in all of this? But he says, lately, I've come to realize that God is responding to today's crises. He is responding. He is aware of what's going on and is actively working for our salvation. It's just that his ways, uh, his ways are not like our ways. He responds not through geopolitical moves or wielding power in the church, but by raising up individuals to live lives of holiness that have a lasting impact on many others. And he cites Father Lauer as an example. You know, like me, Mr. Sammons was received into the church in the 1990s and benefited from Father Lauer's publication, One which included short meditations for each day's mass readings. Unlike me, however, he knew him personally. He encountered Father Lauer in front of a local Planned Parenthood, regularly praying there and counseling frightened mothers in crisis pregnancies. And then in 1998, Father uh, became pastor of Old St. Mary's in the Archdiocese of Cincinnati. And that parish, uh, Mr. Salmon says, was ranked as, as being in one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in the country. And it was on the brink of closure. And Father Lauer kept Old St. Mary's going when it made more worldly sense to shut it down. And yet, since Father's death, and Mr. Sammons believes also due to his intercession, 
both the neighborhood and the parish are now thriving. You know, people from all over greater Cincinnati area drive to be parishioners there. They make the drive to Old St. Mary's because it has been become well known as a church where there are reverent and beautiful liturgies, where there's incredible music. But without Father Lauer turning that parish around, without him being faithful during its darkest days, uh, Eric Sammons points out that none of this would exist today. So many souls, he said, were impacted by a priest long dead, but who was faithful to Jesus Christ. And that's no nonsense. And so eternal rest grant unto Father Lauer, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon him. May he rest in peace. Amen. Well, just have a, a couple of minutes left before the close of the program. And I wanted to uh, put a bug in your ear. Last weekend, we had the Bishop Sheen Conference here at the Sacred Heart Chapel in Covina. And I was there. Terry Barber was there talking about uh, Bishop Sheen and evangelization. Father Peter Howard uh, from the Fulton Sheen Institute was there, gave a couple of uh, one of Bishop Sheen's cassocks and one of his mitres, which I know we were, since he's venerable now, we were able to, to venerate those. I took the opportunity to touch my crucifix to, uh, to those relics and to pray for Bishop Sheen's beatification and for his um, intercession, which I recommend to you as well. Uh, but I was going to say that all those um, talks, of course, were recorded and they will eventually be available um, to purchase, I suspect, or, you know, for, for a donation, I should say. So keep your eyes open for that. And also for everything else that's going on uh, at VMPR at our website, vmpr.org. It is there that you can find out what's going on. There's You can download the free app from there, our, our phone app, where you can listen to all the programs live or on demand, where there's a whole... A uh, great collection of prayers and um, on the app. And everything is also available on the website. You can also listen or watch the uh, the programs on the website as well. And, of course, uh, it is there that you can make a donation. Click on that Donate button. You can either be a donor or you can make a one-time donation. I Believe me, it will be put to good use. And we do need your financial support to keep VMPR going. We're not subsidized by the church. We don't have any major donors. It's just listeners like you. So I invite you to become a donor if you enjoy these programs. And in any case, to please uh, keep us in your prayers, because that's the thing that we need more than anything else at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Okay, that's it for today's program. We will be back in a week's time. Uh, God willing in the creek don't rise and uh, talk about a number of things probably including the, the Synod of Synodality. Took a break from that week <laughs> from that this week and we'll see you then. <laughs>